I have a picture of a guy, Dr. Vivek Murthy. You want to put him up? Yeah. Um, do you all know who he is? He's a vice admiral or was a vice admiral in the Public Health Service Commissioned Corps who served as the 19th Surgeon General of the United States. So he was appointed by President Obama in 2014. He was our Attorney General until this past spring. Um, And since being relieved of his duties by the current administration, um, he's been on a campaign to raise awareness about what he considers to be a hugely dangerous epidemic spreading throughout our country. The condition that he's talking about has a larger impact on mortality than obesity or smoking. In fact, studies say that its capacity to shorten life is equivalent to that of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. But, as Dr. Murthy has been putting forward, he believes few in the medical community are actually talking about this condition or taking it very seriously. Does anyone know what the campaign is about, what he's talking about? Yeah. No. Yes. Basically, loneliness. Yeah. It's a campaign about loneliness, although guns, I, I guess, I'm guessing, are probably similar statistics. Um, So yes, Dr. Murthy wrote an article this fall in Harvard Business Review about the effects of this epidemic of loneliness. So if you want to, I didn't fill in the title because I didn't want to give it away. Um, If you're following along in the the handouts, you're welcome to fill that in. Loneliness is part of the title. Um, So he wrote in this article this fall in Harvard Business Review about the effects of this epidemic that he's been observing in all kinds of populations, starting with teenagers up through seniors. Okay? He says it this way. This is, this is what he is noting as a physician, um, the effects of this loneliness. Over thousands of years, the value of social connection has become baked into our nervous system such that the absence of such a protective force creates a stress, a stress state in the body. Loneliness causes stress. And long-term or chronic stress leads to more frequent elevations of a key stress hormone, cortisol. It's also linked to higher levels of inflammation in the body. This, in turn, damages blood vessels and other tissues, increasing the risk of heart disease, diabetes, joint disease, depression, obesity, and premature death. Chronic stress can also hijack your brain's prefrontal cortex, which governs decision-making, planning, emotional regulation, analysis, and abstract thinking. So it's a big deal. Loneliness matters. It has impact. In the UK in recent years, uh, the medical profession there has made the same observation, and they've actually been putting funding into um, trying to alleviate it, trying to alleviate this epidemic. They have uh, begun a taxpayer-funded Silver Line Helpline, is what it's called in the UK. It's uh, a helpline where, around the clock, people can call and talk to somebody. They can talk about anything. They can talk about, they can play a musical instrument. They can talk about what they ate. Uh, they can talk about, they can tell a story from their, from their past. Often, what people do not mention that when they call, but it is implicit, is that they feel lonely. And here's a way that they can connect with some live human being who's there to communicate with them. Now, there is an irony, I think, in this epidemic of loneliness, Right? Because we live in the age of social media, hyper-connectedness. 
right? This idea that we have technology that can like kind of bring us all together. That's supposed to be the idea, right? That nobody need to be socially isolated. And yet, in the midst of all of those tools, and perhaps even because of some of them, we find ourselves with this really serious um, epidemic on the rise, right, that's impacting lots of people. Well, this is the third Sunday in Advent. And uh, if you haven't been here earlier in Advent, um, just to catch you up, we've been talking this, uh, this year about what does it mean? Advent means coming. It's the Latin word for coming. So what does it mean to experience the coming of God, not just in general, but into the real practical nitty-gritty realities of what it means to be a human being living in the Bay Area in 2017? Okay. What are the parts of our lives that are potentially impacted, could be impacted by what this whole coming of God in the form of Jesus and what that promises for the future as well is supposed to do? And so what we've been doing is thinking about these various um, traditional Advent themes that are reflected on by lots of churches, have been for hundreds of years. Um, gifts, I think they are supposed to be, that come kind of with the coming of Jesus. So we talked about what does it mean for hope to come into a world that feels, you know, more characterized by discouragement right now? What does it mean for peace to come into a world riddled by fear and the division that that, that, that wreaks? And today we're going to ask this question about uh, what the gift of the third Sunday in Advent is meant to bring and what it might bring to particularly a world filled with loneliness. The third Sunday in Advent is traditionally known as uh, Gaudete Sunday, Gaudete Sunday. Put that up. What is that word? I, I am new to this because I am not from the Catholic tradition where this is more, where this really kind of comes from. Um, so I'm new to this language. But Gaudete means rejoice, Okay. It's from the Latin liturgy, Gaudete in Domino Semper. That's the first line. If we were in a, a traditional Catholic church that still did all their liturgy in Latin, that's what we would hear as the priest comes forward. And we would notice everything is decorated in rose today. The priest would walk in with rose vestments. The candle we're going to light today is the rose candle, okay? And it's this idea of joy. It's the candle of joy. But what is joy? as understood in the Bible. What is it actually meant to bring? How might we both receive it and share it? How might it make an impact on our loneliness or the loneliness of those around us? Well, I think to start, as we've been doing, it's super helpful to kind of look back at the Hebrew Bible and uh, the Hebrew terms that we're talking about. Because I think these things have come to just mean something generic in our brains. And we are not necessarily connected to what the biblical authors were talking about, right? So that's what we want to do in the beginning, just to figure out what do we mean when we say joy. And interestingly, I've been studying the work of some rabbis on this this week. And there's two distinct words that they would say um, are important to distinguish from one another. In, in the Hebrew, okay? And the first is this word, ashray, okay? Ashray, I believe we have this, is happiness. That's probably the best translation of it, okay? And you see it in scriptures like Psalm 1, okay? Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path that sinners tread or sit in the seat of scoffers. Their delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law they meditate day and night, 
Okay, that's that's happiness. This idea that um, you know things will go well for you potentially. You will have positive circumstances, but it's a very individual experience. Okay, this idea of ashray. It's really an individual experience. You, if you do good things, that's what psalm, the psalmist is saying. Then good things will happen to you. But simcha is a different kind of word. Simcha is the word for joy. And according to Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, simcha in the Torah is never about individuals. It's always about something shared. Okay, it's about a common experience, a communal experience. So it's, it'll say in Deuteronomy, a husband shouldn't go to war when he gets married for the first year because he needs to stay home and bring simcha to his wife. Okay, joy to his wife. Uh, when it, you'll see the word when they talk about festivals. We have festivals of rejoicing together, days of collective celebration. Those are days of simcha, okay? This is what, how he sums it up. It's the exhilaration we feel when we merge with others. It's the redemption of solitude. That is the biblical concept of joy. Does that make sense? It's not so much about things are just going well and it's related to my circumstance. There's something about I am in something with other people, right? I've been thinking about, like, contemporary examples of that kind of simcha feeling. Uh, So I saw Star Wars this week on opening night. Yeah, it was super fun. Elliot, Jason, I, like, you know, they did the whole, Jason got there early and waited in line and I got there with Elliot once the babysitter was there, and, and you know, so we already had our good seats, and, um, and you just, you can feel the vibe in the room, right? Because people are so excited to be there. They've been waiting for this for years, right? This is the night. This is the moment, right? And you watch the previews, and then, like, the Lucasfilms, like, logo comes on the screen, and people are screaming and applauding, and you just feel that energy, Right? And every line that lands, if it's a joke, people are laughing louder than they normally would. If it's like a victory moment, I'm not going to give any spoilers, they clap. You know, There is this sense of like, woo! Everyone feels it together. I think that's some simcha. Another moment I can think of in the last year, um, the day after the inauguration, right, was the day of the Women's March. And my family was planning on going, uh, you know, to, to the Oakland March. And so, you know, we had, our, our, we had a wagon for the girls to ride in. We had all our signs made. We had our hats. We were ready to go. Like, we were, had our pink, whatever. Um, and so we were ready to go, and we, we walked to the North Barkley BART. And I, my, before we got close to the BART station, as soon as we rounded the corner to see it, we were overwhelmed. There was a line around the block just to enter the North Barkley BART station. I'd never seen anything like it. And there was a sense of like, you know, and if this was any other scenario, I'd probably be like, oh, screw this. Let's, let's not go, right? Like, who wants to wait in an hour-long line just to get on the train? But in this particular moment, there was this sense of like, thank the Lord. Look at all these people. Look at how much energy there is. And this is just to get on the freaking train to go to the march, right? And everyone felt it. You're standing in line for an hour just to get on the train. And people were having conversations with my neighbors that we've never had before. You know, we're, we're getting to know people. We're finding out why they're there. It was beautiful. And then by the time we get to the march, it's huge, right? It's just massive. Like, you're trying to text your friends. You can't reach anybody because all the phones are maxed out, right? Um, 
but there's this sense of like, thank God it's so massive. Thank God we can't find each other because we're all just here, you know? And then you're seeing photos later in the day of the same thing happening city after city after city. And I felt this profound connection to so many other people that I don't even know their name. I think I felt simcha. So what does all this have to do with Advent? Well, the Advent hope, the hope for God's coming, does begin in the Hebrew Bible, and it is a hope for simcha. Okay, you see it. We've been talking about Isaiah throughout this series. We'll just look briefly at Isaiah again. Here is more of what he had to say in Isaiah 35, 8 through 10. A thoroughfare will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. He's picturing this highway. The unclean will not travel on it. It's reserved for those who are authorized to use it. Fools will not stray into it. No lions will be there. No ferocious wild animals will be on it. They will not be found there. They're delivered. Those delivered from bondage will travel on it. Those whom the Lord has ransomed will return that way, and they will enter Zion with a happy shout. An unending simcha will crown them. Happiness and simcha will overwhelm them. Grief and suffering will disappear. Again, we see Isaiah inspiring the people he's speaking to in Judah who are living in a corrupt society that is far from this experience. To look ahead to this picture of freedom that God is going to bring. Right? He has a real hope that a time of justice is coming, a time of shalom, as we've talked about, a time of simcha. And the image here, I love it, is this people of God are celebrating together, and the, the imagery, the wording is joy sneaks up on them and overtakes them. Unexpectedly, they find themselves overwhelmed by this sense of connection with each other and with God. The experience of Advent is meant to be a time of waiting what is still to come, right? We still haven't seen quite this picture that Isaiah is painting yet. A dawn of an age where there's no wild beasts, there's unending simcha. We're aware, we're not fully in that age, but we also recognize that we stand as people who say we believe that age has begun. Ways that God's coming in Jesus have brought gifts of Advent into the world. And that includes this joy, this Simcha. And that brings us to finally this Christmas story we're going to talk about a little bit today. And the story begins not with Mary or Joseph, but with an old priest living in Israel named Zechariah. And he lived a common life as a priest, a husband but also, I think, with a longing in his heart, a kind of loneliness. For he was greatly advanced in age, and yet his wife was barren. They had no children. And Luke describes the situation this way. We're just going to take some extra time today just uh, of this teaching. A lot of it's just going to be looking at Luke's words, because I just think the story itself preaches itself in so many ways. So, verse 8. Now, while Zechariah was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the holy place of the Lord and burn incense. And now the whole crowd of people were praying outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense, appeared to him. And Zechariah, visibly shaken when he saw the angel, was seized with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, 
For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. And joy and gladness will come to you, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And he must never drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. He will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go as forerunner before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn their hearts of the fathers back to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared for him. Zechariah said to the angel, how can I be sure of this? For I'm an old man. My wife is old as well. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And now, because you do not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, you will be silent, unable to speak until the day these things take place. Now the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they began to wonder why he was delayed in the holy place. And when he came out, he wasn't able to speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the holy place because he was making signs to them and remained unable to speak. So we're going to stop there for now. So the way that Luke begins the story, this, this is the setup for just the story of who Jesus is and what he came to do, Luke's version, right? The setup is this, this introduction, these stories of two miraculous pregnancies. This is the first. Now you think about it, what we've been talking about. A pregnancy in itself, in its very existence, is a communal experience, right? It can't not be. I mean, even just a more average pregnancy, right, the, the, with no miracles in that way. There's the coming together of two human beings, the mingling of their DNA. That's an intimate communal experience. And then there's the conception of a human being in the body of another human being, right? Pregnancies, by their very nature, cannot be solitary experiences. The text tells us that Elizabeth is very old. Presumably, she's been trying to conceive with her husband for, like, the better part of her life, likely since she was a teenager, she was she probably in her 50s or 60s at least at this point. So imagine 50 years, 50 years of this unmet hope for them, right? 50 years of connecting with one another in their sorrow, 50 years of carrying the grief of childlessness together. Who knows the arguments that ensued? Maybe they resented one another. Wondered if things would be different if they'd had a different partner. You never know, right? You can imagine the ways they might have avoided speaking what they were longing for. They just stopped talking about it 30 years ago, right? For fear of upsetting the other. Or the times those, the grief just kind of leaked out in painful ways when a new baby's brought to the, te- the temple to be dedicated, when one of their sisters or brothers gives birth to a new niece or nephew. There's been a loneliness for Elizabeth and Zechariah. Even if they've lived for decades in a happy, loving marriage otherwise. And it's into that loneliness that this messenger from God announces a new communal experience of joy. 
Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. Joy and gladness will come to you, and many will rejoice at his birth. But Zechariah is afraid to hope. He's skeptical. Rejoicing is not something he is accustomed to in this area. How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man. My wife is as old as well. And you can hear in it, right, the years of disappointment in his voice. He's receiving this invitation to exaltation, to celebration, to experiencing blessing, even in the midst of what's going to be arguably still a hard life, okay? There's still going to be pain and heartache. Zechariah is not getting his youth back in this promise. We don't get the sense that he's going to be granted miraculously long life. He's going to be an old dad. He may not even see his kid reach adulthood. We never hear, when we hear of an adult John, of of John's parents again. So likely that they didn't. They're still living as occupied people, right? In this, in a very, you know, they have no power, no money. All of that is still there. Those problems don't go away. There's the real concern of how anyone else is possibly going to even believe for Zechariah that he just saw an angel. And that his wife isn't just going to be mad and heartbroken at him for even bringing up the topic of possibly she could get pregnant. Right? So I think his reaction is pretty understandable. But it seems to be a big deal to the angel. Right? He's told because of Zechariah's lack of belief, he will be kept from speaking until the birth happens. That can feel pretty punitive, maybe petty. But I wonder if part of what the angel is getting at is connected to this invitation to rejoice. I wonder if perhaps the reason he loses his capacity to speak is in a sense, it's just a recognition of the reality that Zechariah is challenged to do the only appropriate thing to do in the circumstance he's just found himself in. This is a moment only to rejoice. This is a moment. This entire pregnancy is an occasion for celebration and joy. No, all of life hasn't just miraculously become perfect or trouble-free. But there is an unimaginable wonder and beauty, even in the midst of a life of challenge, that is showing up right here. And it's bigger. It's even bigger than this baby. God has shown up in the world in a way that God hasn't been heard from for centuries. This is the first moment in 500 years. The line has been cold. There have been no prophets. There have been no revelations. Imagine what we've been saying about Elizabeth and Zechariah and multiply it a hundredfold. This is the people of Israel who have gone without a connection from God for 500 years, living on the stories, but wondering, is any of it really real? Zechariah showed up. He's a priest. We go and we burn incense. That's what we do. Not because we expect God to speak to us. Yahweh to show up in the presence of an angel, in the holiest of holies. It's a stunning revelation, and it's so much bigger than Elizabeth and Zechariah. God is here. God is doing something in the world. And also, God has seen Elizabeth and Zechariah. He has seen 
their grief. He has chosen them to play a role in God's long-awaited activity. This is an occasion for celebration and awe. It's beyond happiness. It is about joy. Joy is rooted in communal experience, and this is what the angel is here to communicate to Zechariah. His life and the life of his child have communal significance. Everything about this baby isn't just for them and their own little happiness, although that's real. But it is for the community. These are the words he uses. Joy and gladness will come to you. Many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go as a forerunner before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. Make ready for the Lord a people prepared for him. This is about something so much bigger than their family. But Zechariah doesn't see that. All he can focus on is his own story, not the bigger story it's a part of. I'm an old man. My wife is old. He's caught up in himself. And so he's insecure, he's lonely, he's cynical, he's hurt. All of that gets in the way of him being able to enter the joy of God doing a new thing right in front of him and with him. And so perhaps the angel takes away his voice because he knows that to have it do anything in this moment besides rejoicing isn't appropriate. And if he's not yet ready to speak words of joy, then it would be better for him not to speak at all. Well, Elizabeth does conceive, and so verses later does her young cousin Mary, after Mary receives her own divine visitor. And by the time... Elizabeth learns of her cousin's pregnancy, you got to imagine Elizabeth has now absorbed a lot. There was the experience of her husband coming home from the temple, unable to speak, that strange thing that happened to him. He's trying to communicate in signs. We don't know. Was he, you know, later it talks about him writing, but was, was she able to read? I don't know. How did that communication happen? What happened? And that this crazy news that they're going to have a baby And then she does conceive. I've been thinking about what was that like? What were the first signs? Because she's probably post-menopausal, so like missing your period, it probably wasn't it. Did she get morning sickness? Did she feel her body start to shift? Did she begin, when did she begin to understand? This was really real. She was indeed with child. Well, by the time Mary arrives, she's six months along. And then young Mary comes to her door. And this is how Luke describes that scene. In those days, Mary got up and went hurriedly into the hill country to a town of Judah and entered Zechariah's house and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud voice, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child in your womb. And who am I? that the mother of my Lord should come and visit me. For the instant the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that what was spoken to her by the Lord would be fulfilled. When Elizabeth has her encounter with the presence of God, come to her in the form of a pregnant virgin cousin, she's ready. 
The moment she receives Mary at her door, she feels the leaping of the child in her body, and that leaping leads her into worship. The picture is that the movement of this baby who, who somehow senses the proximity of the other baby that this baby is meant to foretell, right? The baby moves. And when the baby does, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. And out of her mouth comes what? Joy. Blessing. She rejoices and she identifies it. She names her son has just leapt for joy. In her body. She connects that that is what's happening, that her baby is connected to something bigger. They are experiencing connection, they are merging. She is merging with her baby, with her cousin, with her cousin's baby, ultimately with the activity of God. Right? Well, Zechariah, it's not over for him. He does get another chance to enter the rejoicing. His son is born. The word from Gabriel comes to pass. And the epilogue is that eight days later, it's time for the baby to be dedicated. And he still can't speak. Dad still can't speak. And on the eighth day, this is how how Luke tells it, they came to circumcise the child, and they wanted to name him Zechariah after his father. That's the custom. Okay? But his mother replied, no, he must be named John. And they said to her, but none of your relatives bear this name. So they made signs to the baby's father. I think that's kind of funny because, like, he can hear. You could just ask him. You don't need to make signs, right? (laughs) Anyway, um, inquiring what he wanted to name his son. And he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote, his name is John. And they were all amazed. And immediately Zechariah's mouth was opened and his tongue released, and he spoke, blessing God. Why that moment? Why was that the moment his mouth opened up? I think maybe because Zechariah here has just demonstrated that he is now confident that God has delivered on God's promises. And the choice to name this boy, as the angel instructed, affirms that. Right? It's not just like, oh, and we happen to get pregnant. So yeah, yeah, sure, we'll just do things our way and name it Zechariah. No, he's like, I know why we have this baby. And I know his name must be John. Because all this insane stuff that just happened in the temple nine months ago was real. Right? They see themselves now in this story. They know what their family is to be a part of. And Zechariah and his wife are ready to live into it, to celebrate it, to rejoice in it. And you hear it in the first words he now speaks once his voice is recovered. Luke tells us they are these. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel because he has come to help and has redeemed his people for he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from long ago that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hands of all who hate us. He has done this to show mercy to our ancestors, to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our ancestors, Abraham. This oath grants that we, being rescued from the hands of our enemies, may serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him for as long as we live. Do you hear how he's connecting with a story that was written thousands of years before him? He realizes he's a part of something that is so enduring, something that started so long ago. And yet he and his wife and their son have a role to play 
And then he blesses that child. You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of our God's tender mercy, the dawn will break upon us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zechariah gets it. He finally gets it. That this story is so much bigger than him. It's about what God is doing to redeem God's people. And that must be celebrated with God's people. That is what the joy is about. So Ludwig von Beethoven is known as one of the most gifted composers, I think, that's given the world um, music. And one of his most well-known works is his Ninth Symphony. It was initially commissioned by the Philharmonic, Philharmonic Society of London in 1817, but he didn't finish the work until 1824. And the symphony was very anticipated when it debuted um, for multiple reasons. The first hearing was done in his home of Vienna, and uh, the symphony required one of the things that people were excited about is a much bigger orchestra than had ever been used in a major symphony to that point. Um, so that was a notable feature. But the most revolutionary part of Beethoven's Ninth was the addition of a choral movement at the end of the symphony. That had never been done before, to add singers to a symphony. Okay? It was a new thing. But Beethoven felt that the movement he envisioned in this symphony, it was building to something, and that something wouldn't be complete unless there were voices exultantly singing. And the words he chose to set to that tune were Friedrich Schiller's poem, Ode to Joy. Now, Beethoven had been steadily losing his hearing for years, and it was unclear to many at this point how advanced the loss was. He wasn't really talking about it. He may not have been able to hear a lot of what he was writing, but he could feel it, and people could tell that. And so while he couldn't conduct the orchestra, he insisted on being involved. He wanted to be on stage near the conductor in order to communicate the tempos and the spirit of the music. One musician playing that day described him this, this way. He stood in front of the conductor stand and threw himself back and forth like a madman. And at one moment, he stretched to his full height, and the next he crouched down to the floor, and he flailed about with his hands and feet as though he wanted to play all the instruments and sing all the chorus parts. He was into it. But the most profound moment came at the end. When the piece was finished, the crowd erupted in thunderous applause. But with his back to them, Beethoven had no idea. Caroline Unger was the mezzo-soprano soloist that day. She had to tap him on the arm and have him turn around so that he could see the crowd's response. Many of those in attendance, including Miss Unger, found themselves with tears in their eyes because that was the moment they realized the extent of Beethoven's hearing loss, that he had no idea the thunderous applause were roaring. But as the people experienced his masterpiece... And he experienced their rapture with it. It was a moment, I think, of pure, unadulterated simcha, joy. It didn't bring back Beethoven's hearing. 
but he could experience exultant rejoicing even in the silence. Isaiah looked to a day of pure joy, pure perfection. And the joy that Zechariah and Elizabeth experienced and celebrated was a reminder that the day is coming, even even as it has not yet fully come. Today we stand in that now and that not yet, that tension, the reign of God is here, and yet it is still not come in its fullness. The joy is real and with us, but we still wait for it to be complete. There is imperfection, and yet in the imperfection, we still can have connection. Moments of merging with others where we get caught up together in the bigger story we're a part of. So this Advent, how can we receive this gift of joy in a world marked by loneliness? I'm just going to end by suggesting a few things. The first is we recognize our deep and natural need for connection with others. Particularly in a time and place that's more mobile, I think, than we've ever been. Lots of us move. We don't live close to family. We may not have a natural system to connect us. We may forget that we really do need it. I think we're implicitly told by our culture that it's not fundamental, that you simply move where the opportunity comes, right? We work whatever gigs we can. It's the gig economy, right? But those gigs don't always connect us in deep ways with other people. We commute, possibly, in our cars, right? That's the way you stay in a little island unto yourself. You go somewhere, you come back, you don't have to interact with anyone. And as Vivek McMurthy has pointed out, it's killing us. And I think this really does go beyond shallow social media connection. We have to remember, the aim of Facebook isn't actually to connect us. That's a myth. That's a lie. That's why they lure you on. It's not to connect us. It's to commoditize us. That's the aim of Facebook, to sell us to companies, to sell companies to us. That is really what it is. These tools can be useful for connection. These technological tools, they they can be part of the puzzle, but we have to recognize they are what they are, right? They're only tools. It really matters what relationships we cultivate and how we use them. We can't expect them to just do the work for us. And and we have to watch, I think, our our tendency to substitute this kind of sense of uh, being liked, right? with uh, having real connection with people. Just because somebody liked our post doesn't mean we actually have life-giving connection. So how do we invest more in real connection with each other? How can we be investors in it? There's lots of ideas. When he was Surgeon General, Dr. Murthy introduced a practice in his weekly staff meetings. For five minutes each week, one of their staff members would just be invited to share some of their story from their personal life, whatever they wanted to share. It's such a small, simple practice, but people found it really revolutionary. It made a huge difference in how people just responded to one another in work to kind of get a sense of who these people were that they work by every day. And they never knew, right, what their childhood was like, what their relationships with their kids are like, any of that. 
think about the settings you find yourselves in, professionally or in places you frequent. What would it look like for you to pursue deeper connection with folks? Who do you know that may actually be suffering from loneliness with no one pursuing them to actually share anything deeper? What would it mean to be available for that? So I think that's one place we're invited into this joy this season. Another is to choose to celebrate in community. Not as a denial of hardship, but as an act of courage in the face of it. Philosopher Soren Kierkegaard once wrote, It takes moral courage to grieve. It takes religious courage to rejoice. It takes courage to rejoice. To rejoice is to to declare that even in the darkness, there is still light to be experienced. There are still loving moments to be enjoyed. There are still children who make us laugh and loving touches that bring us comfort and songs to sing that stir our souls. That is still true, even when shit is hard, right? As Rabbi Sachs says, Joy lives not in thoughts of tomorrow, but in the grateful acceptance and celebration of today. I think I have this quote. We are here. We are alive. We are among others who share our sense of jubilation. We are living in God's land, enjoying his blessing, eating the produce of his earth, watered by his rain, brought to fruition under his sun, breathing the air he breathed into us, living the life he renews in us each day. And yes, we do not know what tomorrow may bring. And yes, He speaks to a Jewish audience. We're surrounded by enemies. And yes, it was never the safe or easy option to be a Jew. But when we focus on the moment, allowing ourselves to dance, sing, give thanks, when we do these things for their own sake, not for any reward, when we let go of our separateness and become a voice in the holy city's choir, then there is joy. So we take time to feast and drink wine together and play games and give gifts and sing songs. And we do that here and we do that later. And we do that in every context we can. We worship together, not because life is always perfect and easy, but because we're alive and we have one another. And Jesus is in our midst, leading us into celebration. Amen? There's a reason he was often found at a party. He spent a lot of time when he was on earth celebrating around a table with people. And when we do that today, I believe he is with us. And finally, the last thing we need to do is allow God to remind us of the bigger story we're a part of. We are in the story of God's coming. It is bigger than any of us. The highway to joy is being paved. We are not just little islands. We are a part of something bigger that has been going on for thousands of years and will endure after our years are spent. But while we are here, we can enter into this unfolding of joy and we can be a part of inviting others into the joy we're included in. Amen.